Welcome to Don't Throw Out the Dog, a podcast to dive into the behaviors of your dog to help you understand what they mean, how they're feeling, and what they're trying to say. It's education and knowledge for a closer connection, bringing your best friend even closer. Now your host, Armando Morales. Hey everyone, welcome back. It's Armando. Thank you for being here. I really do appreciate it. I know it's only episode three, but I'm extremely grateful that people are tuning in. And I'd be more appreciative if I knew that you were getting some information from this. So uh, drop me a line. You know, you can find me on Instagram at my name, Armando Morales 77. And um, if you can uh, just tell me what you think and whether you're learning something or not, if something else that you'd like to be able to hear about, let me know. Information and feedback is important for me. So today we're going to be talking about resiliency, resiliency in dogs. So what is resiliency? Let's start with exactly what that means. I looked up the definition a few days ago, and I want to read it to you here briefly. Resilient, of a person or animal able to withstand or recover quickly from difficult situations. Synonyms are strong, tough, hardy. So resiliency is essentially... As far as dogs are concerned, resilient means that your dog is able to bounce back or recover from some kind of harrowing or difficult or stressful, challenging situation or environment. It could be an incident that happened, right? Maybe a little scuffle with another dog and your dog is able to bounce back from that. They're able to shake it off and move on and it doesn't have a lasting impression. It doesn't affect their day-to-day behaviors or long-term outlook on other dogs. And then you have the dog that is not resilient. He's got low resiliency. And this is the exact opposite. This is the dog that doesn't have a high bounce back rate. This is a dog that when something happens to him or her, it tends to stick. And it sticks because they start making negative association. If you remember the last episode, I talked about associations and how dogs make them. And this is their primary way of learning and taking in, or rather how they navigate the world. So, yes, a low-resiliency dog is one that doesn't make positive associations towards a certain situation because the event, the circumstance, the occurrence sticks with him for some time. And this is important. This is important because it informs the way that they navigate the world. Okay, so let me illustrate to you a little story that will help better put this into context and, underst- and help you understand what I mean with resiliency and when it comes to dogs. So I've got two dogs, two pity mixes. If you follow me on social media, you'll see them, Macho and Lulu. I love my dogs. Uh, Macho's about seven, Lulu's about six. I've had them since they were puppies. And they're very different in terms of personality and the way that they see the world and the way that they deal with the world. So let me give you this story. I and my girlfriend at the time were cleaning out our kitchen. And uh, like most kitchens, you know, we had, we, we've got teenage kids and the kitchen was a mess in terms of all the stuff that was in the cabinets. So there's just plates, dishes, a whole bunch of utensils. They're disorganized and then they have things and then we have all these other things that we don't use. So they're taking up a lot of space. So all the cabinets were crowded. We wanted to kind of change all that, reorganize it all, clean it up. And that involves obviously taking everything out. So here we are in the kitchen doing that, removing all the items from the cabinets. And the cabinets are overhead, as as you know, they're on the wall. So I'm removing all that stuff from the cabinets. And like most dogs, my dogs know exactly what the kitchen is. They know that the food is there. They know the food comes from there. They associate it with food. 
So they're meandering about, you know, they're back and forth. They're not exactly in my way, but they're, they're there, they're present. Like most dogs, also, they like to be around their humans. So I was taking glasses, plates, bowls out. And I remember that at one time, I took a, a handful of plates, these white plates that I had, ceramic-type plates. And I took about four at a time, and they slipped from my hand. And all four plates went to the ground, and they, they made a loud bang, and they broke up and shattered into different pieces. And naturally, the dogs freaked out, and they, they scattered away which is a good thing because I started cleaning up. I was a little worried that one of them was going to get cut. They were going to step on the pieces that were all around, which is fine. So within about maybe five minutes, if even that, the boy, Macho, was already making his way back into the kitchen. First, he craned his neck in a little bit, scoped out the scene, make sure there weren't any additional flying plates coming his way. And then he started moving in. I remember that I had to kind of scoot him out of the way because, again, I was still cleaning and I didn't want him to, kind of, to, to get cut. Now, Lulu did not come back. Lulu did not come back. And I, here's, here's the point of this story. This story that I'm telling you happened about roughly five years ago. And to this date, no exaggeration, Lulu will not set foot in that kitchen again. She won't do it. Oh, she'll come close, especially when there's food being cooked, when there's treats being given out, because yes, occasionally we give out treats from the kitchen. And she will crane her neck. Sometimes she'll extend her whole body, like keeping her paws on on the edge, on the border, but she won't go into the kitchen. And on the rare occasion when we have her on a leash and we just absentmindedly walk her through the kitchen, she freaks. She like freezes. She'll stop. And then she'll tense up. She won't go in. And that's the difference between the two dogs. My boy, Macho, is very resilient. He's able to bounce back from an incident that scared the crap out of him. But he didn't see it as a negative. He was, he was shaken up. Clearly, he was startled. Clearly, it stressed him out. But he was able to brush it off and just move back in. He didn't see the incident as a permanent thing. He didn't see the danger in it, so he went forward again. Lulu, on the other hand, marked it as a permanent thing. And in her mind, forevermore, that kitchen is dangerous. Things fall. Things can hurt you. Things can come out of nowhere. And that association that she made has lasted through to this day. I'm sure, in her mind, she doesn't understand why she won't go into the kitchen. She won't understand why she has made this decision not to go into the kitchen. She won't remember the incident because we also talked about how dogs are unable or incapable of projecting their thoughts too far into the future or reflecting too much on the past. So that incident, those plates flying at her, she doesn't remember that. But she made an association that that place is dangerous. That spot in particular is dangerous. And she stuck with it because she's got very, very low resiliency. She does not bounce back well from scary or, you know, traumatizing type incidents. I hate to use the word traumatizing because it doesn't need to be traumatizing. Now, yes, as I said again in the past episode, whatever your dog deems scary, it doesn't matter that you don't see it as scary or threatening. It's what your dog thinks of it. It's how your dog perceives it and takes the information in. So I hate to use the word traumatized because from our perspective, it's not a 
traumatic event, but from the dogs, it could very well be. If you define trauma as something that just sticks with you and you're unable to move past, then you could say she was traumatized by those plates. And that, that, that incident just creates, created such a, a lasting impression and association that forevermore she, she won't go into kitchens. So how is this relevant? What does this have to do with you and your dog? Everything. Everything. A dog that has low resiliency, a dog that doesn't bounce back well from incidents, first of all, they usually fall into the anxious, kind of insecure, nervous, fearful type dogs. Not always. But for the most part, these descriptions usually fit into the category of dogs that you can define as having low resiliency. And you can see it in them. You can see it in their body language. You can see how they navigate through life, how they deal with circumstances and new events and new situations. And that's the other thing with low resiliency dogs. These kind of dogs are dogs that usually don't give in to their natural curiosity. These dogs don't explore much. These dogs, you know, don't go out and investigate. Their curiosity and their need to explore is usually tempered down by fear and insecurity and a lack of confidence so that they don't do any of that stuff, right? They don't navigate away from the normal. They stay within their comfort zone. So going back to how this is important and why this matters to you, you have to arrive at the understanding that, for example, from my perspective, in many of the dogs that I deal with, in many of the cases that, I, that I've handled in the past, usually when a dog has a problem, it could have been avoided. Usually when a dog has a problem, there is a human that has kind of uh, contributed to it and enabled it in some sense. And again, I've used this phrase in the past, we don't know what we don't know. And that really goes far to explain how we deal with these dogs that are very low in resiliency, uh, that don't bounce back well from incidents. And number one, it goes to the idea that we're not able, we're, we're really kind of inept at reading dogs' body languages. And if I've told you before, I'll say it a thousand times, the very best thing that you can do at any given time is learn how to read your dog's body language. It is the one primary way in which a dog is going to communicate with you at any time. And I'll tell you, if you're not in a position where you can clearly understand what your dog is communicating through his body language, then you're operating in the dark. Because whether you're dealing with a highly confident dog with a dominant type dog, and we'll get into that at some other point, or with one of these insecure, low-resiliency dogs, it's all displayed in their body language. How they feel at any given time is shown right there. Dogs are not deceptive in that way. And what happens with these kind of dogs is that we begin to put them into situations that don't work for them, that create enormous amount of stress and insecurity in them. And because we don't read the signs, because we don't understand that what we're dealing with is a dog that isn't going to bounce back well from stress, we continue to put the dogs into these situations, and that just means that the dog starts developing an association, a negative association, to whatever, whatever scenario you're creating. 
whether it's taking a dog to a daycare when your dog is not suitable for daycare. Yes, some dogs are not suitable for daycare. Or a dog park when your dog... I see this all the time. People taking their dogs to a dog park and clearly I can see it in the dog that the dog is just not comfortable in that place, in that scenario. And again, it's that situation because we do it because we don't understand what we're looking at. We don't understand what we should be doing. We don't understand how the dog is seeing the event or feeling about it. But I'll tell you that in many instances, what you have is a dog who just doesn't feel comfortable, doesn't feel at ease in the presence of other dogs in this space, and then we repeatedly take him back to that same location. And usually we do it out of the... You know, our intentions are not... I'm not saying that our intentions are bad. Our intentions can be good. In fact, most of the time they are. Because in this case, for example, we want to socialize the dog. And that's what we think. We think of socialization in very simple terms. Not that it's highly complex. It isn't. But we oversimplify it. So we want to socialize the dog. What better way to do it than to put him around 50 other dogs? But you may not have the dog that gets along well with 50 other dogs, that feels comfortable with 50 other dogs. And because you have a low-resiliency dog, you have a dog who isn't going to do well dealing with that stress or bounce back well from some kind of incident, you have the chance where you continuously stress that dog out. And when you continue to stress that dog out in the same way, in the same context, the dog will inevitably start to build an association. And what I've seen play out is the owner who, with good intentions, takes the dog to the dog park. I can see in the dog that the dog is not comfortable, that he or she doesn't want to be there. And over time, because the repeated exposure, the owner continues to take him back, that dog starts to develop a negative association towards other dogs. Because it's a rare thing for a dog who is, who is anxious and insecure and fearful, a dog who takes a very long time to warm up to other dogs, a dog who doesn't take well to large groups of dogs. It's a very rare dog who kind of gets put into that environment and then acclimates. At some point, he's like, yeah, okay, this is cool. This isn't so bad. It happens, yeah. It does happen, but first of all, it, it's not often that it happens. Number two, rarely does it happen just on its own. Sometimes dogs need some kind of coaching through. And again, you're dealing with a human who doesn't know how to read the dog, and they don't know their dog. They don't know their dog. So through, bad, through good intentions, they, 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 they kind of screw up the dog's future. And then they wonder why. At some point down the road, their dog starts to develop reactivity or aggressive-like displays of behavior towards other dogs. In their mind, and I, I hear this all the time, in their mind, they're thinking, I, I take him to the dog park all the time. We're always going to the dog park. I don't understand why he's freaking out. He's freaking out because, number one, your dog never liked the dog park. Number two, he doesn't like those large groups of dogs. Number three, you have an insecure dog who has low resiliency. And because he has low resiliency, he's going to start making negative associations towards those things that stress him out. And guess what stresses him out? Being in dog parks with other dogs. So you see, hopefully, how these behaviors start to take shape, how they form. And it isn't, now I gave you an example of, uh, you know, daycare or dog park, but it could be anything. It could be uh, a dog meeting another dog on leash. It could be, 
um, walking into a pet store. It could be your dog being around children. You've got some dogs that are fantastic around children. And then you've got other dogs that are not. And you can't, unless you know what you're looking at, you can't always see the clear sign that the dog is not comfortable. Sometimes it's the small things. Sometimes it's the way that the dog moves around the child or moves away from the child or the way that the dog looks at the child or the ears or the body posturing or the tail. Here's a tip to reading a dog's body language. What I usually hear is the tail wagging. That seems to be like universal code for I'm happy, which it isn't, by the way. I have seen dogs go into full fight mode. Meanwhile, their, their tails are, are, are wagging like crazy back and forth. So the wagging tail is not an indicator of your dog being piss happy. It isn't. But one good tip for reading a dog's body language, it's, it's, it's a bit of detective work. So what you do is you put all the pieces together. Every facial expression, every movement, every body posture. And then you arrive at a conclusion based on all the pieces that you put together. So in other words, if you've got a waggy tail, then you've got to put that into context and in combination with maybe the ears pinned back. Or maybe you've got a skittish dog that moves away from an individual, a person, in a certain environment. And that has to inform you as to what the dog is feeling at that moment. So don't be led or guided by only one thing. This is generally what I see happening. And again, I go back to the waggy tail because that's what people see as a big light sign that says this dog is feeling this way. But that is not the case. And it's also a poor way of judging it. Because dogs are not able to verbalize, what you want to do is start taking all the pieces and putting them all together like a puzzle and then arrive at a conclusion. You're, you're going to be making some kind of guess. You're always going to be making some kind of guess. Listen, there is no trainer, there is no dog person who can look at their dog and say with 100% certainty and accuracy that this is exactly what my dog is feeling at any given time. You can arrive that with continued practice, with continued observation and vigilance, with understanding your dog, and each time you do, your educated guess gets better and better and stronger and stronger. You get a little more accurate there. But it's always going to be some level of guesswork, and everything is going to inform you. It isn't just going to be the dog and what the behavior, what the, the posturing, what the, the expressions are going to tell you, but it's also the context under which the dog is giving you those expressions and postures. So is it indoors or outdoors? Are there certain individuals that may be adding to the dog's confusion or stress levels or happiness? All of that starts giving you clues and information as to what's going on with your dog at, at any moment. And that's what you really want to do. And, and it, you know what? It's a science and an art. Because if you can go online, you can watch videos, you can read books. There's a lot of picture books. And this, yes, this is one situation where you want to see a lot of picture books that will guide you in terms of teaching you and educating you what you should be looking for when it comes to body language and what each one means. So that's what you really want to do. You want to start delving into that kind of material and then just go out and look at your dog or look at every other dog because they're always giving you and sharing information and see if you can surmise what they're, what they're feeling at any moment. And if you don't have the ability to read that, you're going to be operating in the dark. 
So understanding the kind of dog that you have and whether your dog is resilient or not is really powerful. It's a very, very powerful way of understanding and, and, and getting to know your dog at a deeper level. Okay, so now you understand what a resilient dog is and one that is not very resilient. So how does this factor into your life with your dog? How does this affect your dog overall? And it affects your dog because of the way that you handle the dog, the way you move through life with that dog, what you introduce the dog to, what you don't introduce the dog to. So, for example, very often what we do is we want to be able to expand the dog's perception of life. We want to, do, we want to expand the dog's horizon. In many instances, what we want to do is we use the socialization process as a means to do just that. We want to be able to take the dog and kind of open up his world. And we think, because we hear the key word socialization so much, and very often so many of us don't really understand what socialization is. But to us, we have a, a blanket idea of what socialization is, and that's just basically let's just introduce the dog to just about everything. And that may be one description of socialization, but it doesn't exactly define what socialization is. And, and in a nutshell, I will tell you, yes, socialization in practice is to introduce the dog to as many things, many people, and in many circumstances and different environments as possible. As, very early, as early on as you possibly can, preferably, ideally, anyway. But here's the key. Socialization works... The exposure to other things work if it's done so in a positive light. So in other words, your dog has a positive experience. So it's not about introducing him to your next door neighbor's crazy dog. It's not about bringing your dog into some kind of high, intense, loud environment. It's about creating a positive experience for your dog. It's about introducing your dog to another dog that is, is, is going to be on somewhat amicable terms. So, so it's going to be a friendly dog. So it's going to be a more social, balanced dog. So your dog, again, is going to have that good experience. It's a positive, rewarding experience. And that's what socialization is. So it's the same thing with the environment. We take them into environments that are, that are conducive to, to growth and to positive experiences. We don't take them into a space that's going to freak them out. And that is why it is important to understand exactly why you have, whether you have a resilient or non-resilient dog. That is why it really matters for you to understand this about your dog. Because very often, what creates behaviors in dogs, again, as I said in the last podcast, it's the repetition of, of bad behaviors, but it's also the continued exposure to a stressful environment. So the continued exposure to a stressful type of environment, and I'm really simplifying it here, can create frustration and even fear. And therefore, that brings forth some kind of negative behavior, maybe reactivity in some form. This often happens with dogs that, are, that, that just don't have that kind of ability to bounce back from certain situations. They have that kind of stickiness and every, everything sticks to them. Every negative stuff sticks to them. And by the way, when I describe the kind of dogs who, who fall kind of into this category, the needy type dogs, the ones that are very clingy, the ones that are very sticky to you, some of these dogs can be very low in resiliency as well. They don't do well from, they don't, they don't recover well from certain incidents. And the thing is that when we have a dog who is not the kind who bounces back well from incidents, and we continue to put him into situations and environments from where that dog is going to continuously be just stressed out and freaked out 
and tense, you're setting up a situation where the dog is going to fail. You've got a recipe right there. A fearful dog, a freaked out, tense, stressed out dog in a situation that's just going to perpetuate that stress. That's just going to enhance it, in other words, for lack of a better term, and bring it out even further. That's a recipe for just bad behavior starting. And those bad behaviors typically fall in, in line of, 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 of aggression of some kind, reactivity of some kind, increased anxiety. And that's why it's important to know whether your dog is resilient or not. Do you have that kind of dog who can move forward into certain situations, have a kind of scary un, or unsettling event or encounter and bounce back from it? Or do you have to be mindful going forward that where you take your dog is something that you have, you have to kind of think about, you have to be proactive about? Some dogs, you know what, you can throw in the car and just go and go somewhere with them and you know that they're going to do well. And then other dogs, and these are the ones that don't that, that are low in resiliency, that don't bounce back so well, these are the ones that you've got to give some forethought to in terms of where you're going to take them. Are they going to do well at your parents' house, at your in-laws' house? Are they going to do well with those kids around? Are they going to do well with those other dogs around? Is this a dog that I can take on this trail or on this hike? Or maybe I, I need to find another place to take him. Is this guy going to do well on this busy street? Or is that just going to stress him out even further because he's not very resilient? Because if he runs across another dog and something happens, something should happen, that dog's not going to bounce back from it. He's going to remember that. He's going to start creating negative associations. Is this the kind of dog that I can take into a pet store where there, he's, there are going to be other dogs, where we're going to walk into you know confined, tight spaces, into aisles, where we may not have an escape route? Where he's going to be crowded by other people. Maybe other screaming kids. Maybe you've got that kind of dog. Maybe you've got the dog who's the mayor of the town. And he's friendly and he's sociable and he's going to thrive in that environment. He's going to love it. And everyone's going to love him or her. Or maybe you've got the kind of dog who is going to get freaked out in that space. Maybe you've got the dog who's not going to do well. He's going to tense up. And, and that space and everything that that dog feels in that space is going to carry on with him. He's going to carry that, that feeling with him. And he's going to start developing negative associations. And I guarantee you that if you've got that kind of dog, again, going back to body language, he is telling you. He or she is telling you, look, I don't feel cool about this. I don't feel cool about these people around me. Or this other dog that's coming down the aisle. Why are you pushing me towards them? And, uh, when, and when I've talked about in the past how you know we create situations because we don't know what we don't know. And this is it. This is a typical example of that. How we just set up the situation where we just put the dog and we set him up for failure. And it's because we don't know. It's because we not, don't have the ability to read the body language, number one. And even if we did have the ability to read the body language, we may not know that, well, your dog's not going to do well. This encounter, this situation, as little as or seemingly insignificant as it may be to you is something that's just going to stick in your dog's crow and he's not going to recover well from it and he's going to carry forward from it so that behavior that you see the reactivity that you see start manifesting three four five six months from now may be a byproduct of exactly what you're doing right now with this dog the environments that you're putting him into the setups that you're creating the things that you may be pushing your dog to do, the situations that you may be forcing him into all for the sake of socialization or for having a better dog or for having that friendly, lassie, Disney-type dog may be just backfiring on you and setting you up for something bad down the road.
So that's why resiliency is important. That's why it's important for you to understand exactly what resiliency in a dog is and why it's important to recognize it in your dog, whether he or she is or is not. Because when you know that, when you know this about your dog, when you're able to read the signs in your dog, then you can move forward with a plan. Now you know how to navigate your dog. Look, if you've got a child, for example, and you're taking a child into a scary space, maybe you got a kid, he's your kid, and you're taking him or her to a roller coaster. Or maybe you like haunted houses. You're going to take your kid into a haunted house. Well, that child has a way of communicating with you that you're going to get. You're going to understand. They can verbalize it. They can say, Mom, Dad, I, 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 I don't like this. This, this. this scares me. And right there, that's enough. You're going to understand. And if, you know, if you're a good parent, then <laughs> if you're a good parent, you're going to say, okay, you're going to think to yourself, all right, this may be too much for him or her. So I'm not going to force the issue. I'm not going to take them on that roller coaster. I'm not going to take them into that haunted house. And if you're a crappy parent, well, that's all that stuff is going to blow right past you and you're not going to recognize the signs or care and you're just going to put them through it anyway and probably traumatize your kid. But if you have a child and you're a good parent, the kid's going to be able to verbalize that with you. And whether they're not going to tell you just that, listen, mom, dad, I don't want to go into this place, they're going to cry. And that's going to be a clear indicator to you that, yeah, this, this, this kid's not feeling this too well. So this may not be as joyous an occasion as I thought. Let me just back up. But the dog doesn't have that way to verbally communicate with you. He has a better way. He has a way of communicating through his body language. And it's amazing how we live with these dogs. We live with another species and we don't make an effort to really learn how they communicate with us. You know, really, my personal opinion, I think you should have a license. I, I think we should be required to have a license to have dogs. And one of the requirements is that we have to take classes in dog body language. We have to know how dogs communicate. And we have to dog know what the dog is telling us at any given time. I think, I think right there, that alone will save countless dogs from shelters, rehoming, and euthanization. But that's just me, and I'm going off on a rant. But going back to the point is... Yeah, if you don't know exactly what your dog is telling you at any given time, if you don't understand your dog's body language, and if you don't know the difference between your dog being resilient or not, bouncing back from something, or just having that thing linger on and fester for some time until it grows into something that you, you're, you're feeling challenged about, then, again, you're in trouble because you're, you're operating in the dark. It's all hope and wishes for you. And hopes and wishes, they don't work with dogs. You've got to have a plan. And that plan, again, comes down. I know I'm beating a dead horse over the head here, but it doesn't matter because that's, that's my job. That's my purpose here in this, in this podcast. You've, re you've really got to understand your dog. So I'm going to leave it at that. Okay. Hopefully I've gave you a little uh, food for thought, something to think about, something to dwell on. Now you want to go back to your dog and you want to start. And hopefully while we were going through this podcast, you were thinking, uh -huh, what about, you know, what about this thing and what about that thing you're you're kind of going over in your mind some of the events and situations and encounters that your dog has had and now you're maybe analyzing them hmm maybe my dog is not very resilient maybe my dog doesn't do well in these situations and with these kind of people or this kind of dog and that's good that's good for you to know Start investigating that a little more. Analyze your dog a little, a little more. Analyze a little the situations and the encounters that he gets into. Be a little more critical. Be a little more vigilant. That's what it means to be a parent or a leader. 
Dogs, you know, one one big myth about dogs that I still hear all the time is that they, people think that dogs are going to figure life out on their own. And they're not. Really, they're not. Dogs do not figure life out on their own. Dogs just do what works, whether that's right for you or not, whether it's moral or not, whether it's good or bad or not. It doesn't matter. They're just going to do what works. So you're going to have to put yourself in a situation, especially if you have one of these low-resiliency dogs, you got to put yourself in a situation where you're going to have to start making choices for your dogs. Because if you're of the mind, well, the dog's just going to figure it out on his or her own, that, that, that isn't always the case. In fact, that's, in my experience, rarely the case. So you've got to be proactive. You've got to start making choices for your dog. You, you've got to determine whether it's cool for your dog to enter this place or go to this location or not. And you're only going to be able to make those assessments and decisions based on what your dog is telling you. So let's leave it at that, okay? Let's go on to the next podcast. I hope this gave you some information, a little bit of insight, a little something to think about, a new way of looking at your dog, a new way of considering situations that you get into with your dog. Come visit me on Instagram. You you know the uh, information. It's Armando Morales, 77. That's A-R-M-A-N-D-O, 77. Drop me a DM. Let me know that you're listening to the podcast. Let me know what you think. Rate and review, if you can, helps me tremendously. If you think that this is helpful to you, then let's spread the word and see if we can help other people too. That's that's really what I want to do with this thing. I'm not looking to monetize. I'm not looking to make any money of it. Honestly, really, even if I did, I had I'd have no idea how to go about it. And it's not even something I'm going to look into because I'm not. I'm not interested in in making any money off of this. I just want to be able to help people. I just want to be able to kind of come at people from a different direction, from a different point of view, and make them think. So hopefully I did just that today. All right, all the best to you. This has been Don't Throw Out the Dog. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to this podcast to be the first to hear new episodes jam-packed with actionable tips and tricks, small changes you can make that will make an everlasting difference in the life of your dog and your relationship with it. For more exclusive content, Follow Armando on Instagram at Armando Morales 77.